Today we'll be discussing the life and career of actor Cal Penn, and we'll be discussing physician burnout. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor, and neither is Cal Penn, by the way. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, coinciding with the recent release of the book, You Can't Be Serious, we'll be discussing the life and career of actor Cal Penn. Then we discuss the topic of physician burnout. Unless you're too burned out to talk about it, huh? By the way, you said uh, we're going to be discussing the life of career and career of actor as if he's uh, Anthony Hopkins and in the, you know, December of his years. It, it feels like we're doing a retrospective on a guy who's quit. But in fact, pretty, how do you want to say it? Like a experience heavy life already that he's led, right? Outside of just being a standard run of the mill actor. I think it's been quite an interesting life he's already had. And I, of course, we are talking about him because of his memoir that came out in early October called You Can't Be Serious. So. May, some of you might have read it. Some of you may plan to in the new year. Like myself, I plan to. It's your New Year's resolution. No, don't say it. That's a curse. Oh, sorry. Okay, well, let's get into Cal Penn. Yes. Okay, so Ali, I wanted to ask you today about Cal Penn, as you mentioned, his book, which is called You Can't Be Serious, came out in October. And I mean, I thought we could just go over his career and your thoughts about him, because you and I offline have kind of talked about, you know, in our words, trailblazing brown actors. And he is it. You know, he's the goat of that particular category. And let's okay, be clear what we're talking about. We're not talking about Bollywood actors, right? We're talking about people who moved to either uh, the UK or particularly North America is what we're talking about and made a career in acting. Yeah, you must think our listeners are real morons to have to clarify that. But no, we're not talking about I know, that. that's not it. I just want, want people to be like, well, what about Amita Bachchan? Okay. Everybody relax here. Yeah, you're probably right. We were going to get a lot of letters with the words Amita Bachchan in it. Yeah. Thank you for avoiding that flood of emails and letters that we were going to get. Uh, yeah, he's an OG, man. He's an OG. What was the first time you saw Cal Penn in a movie? So the first time is, I never watched Van Wilder with Ryan Reynolds, but I saw clips of it. I said, oh, there's a brown character in this. That's the first time I can I can remember seeing him in something. And then when he was in Harold and Kumar... I went back and realized it was the same person. What about you? Okay. Yeah. So you never saw American Daisy? I did, but after I kind of was ah, exposed okay. to him to that. Because I saw American Daisy and then I didn't realize again it was the same person. I only realized that afterwards. So this is a sad fact that our listeners should know about that Asif Doja, a brown guy, thinks that all brown people look alike or cannot distinguish. It's almost between. the opposite. It's almost I thought he was three different people, but America at that time was only hiring one brown actor for movies and TV shows, and it was Cal Penn. So, but anyways, but you were saying America Daisy was the first time you saw him? I did. And so this movie is from 2001, and it was directed by a guy I befriended in the end, my friend Piyush Pandya. And Piyush, I mean, he's an IT guy, you know, but this was just a a thing that he really wanted to do. And I, you know, I think he maybe thought, I certainly thought that he was going to become a director and. Oh, he never did. He never did. I mean, he was a director, but he didn't pursue it after that. He didn't saying. pursue it. And I, I don't know how much directing he did. It, it's pretty lean, his directing experience. Mm -hmm. So given that and given some pretty lean acting experience on the part of his, his leads, not as lean as Pusha's, but like, you know, actors we knew anything about, like what brown actors did we know about in 2001? Mm -hmm. Hardly anybody, which is why, and I think a couple of them went on to do great things, but definitely Cal Penn was the, actually, I shouldn't say that, Rizwan Manji. What am I talking about? Rizwan Manji was also American Desi. They both stood out as far as their personalities, you know, and their natural charisma on camera. And sure enough, they went on to have great success in Hollywood and continue to have great success. But I shouldn't say sure enough because charisma on screen 
and on camera doesn't necessarily translate into a career. And that's part of the interesting thing about Cal Penn's journey and some of his stories that he tells about, you know, trying to break into this industry. He wasn't doing it just for a favor. You know, he wanted to be uh, very much an actor. And so when I saw him, I was immediately, there was no IMDB. It was very difficult to look up people in 2001. But I remember the first thing I was like, who is that guy? And he was very funny. You know, he was just like every funny brown guy I knew in a way. He was so relatable. And I think that's what he talks about in his book as well. This idea of he's always been relatable to people because he, although it's fun for him to pick roles where he's a murderer or something, it's just, it's so unlike who he really is. And he says a comment to my relatability is that I've spent many years just having complete conversations with strangers which turn out to be pretty deep conversations sometimes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which also leads me to a, a moment of shame in my life. When I met Cal Penn. Oh, I didn't know you met him. What? Yeah. I met him at the craft table at the dinner table for, for designated survivor. So I was on three episodes of this show, designated survivor. Cal Penn was, I think on every episode yeah. of yeah. designated survivor, he would have been. We were never in any scenes together, so I didn't expect to meet him. So I met him out of the blue, just at the table. I think he was about to start filming. I was wrapping up something like this. And it was such a quick interaction. And I had, you know, nothing in my mind that I, I just didn't want to be that guy mm -hmm. who's like fanboy, fanboying, you know, I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. He's on set. The idea is, you know, act like you've been there before, Hassan, act like you're a seasoned actor. You know what you're doing. You don't have it. But to meet him, I, I was dying to tell him like, man, you're, you're an inspiration to so many brown guys. But he's like, you know, is this vegetarian? What about this? Is this vegetarian? And, hey man, you're an inspiration to, you know, there was no in. So I had a very quick chat with him and I said, you know, I, I'm friends with Piyush who directed American Daisy. He goes, man, have you talked to Piyush recently? I said a couple of months ago, he goes, tell him I say hi. I you know, I haven't talked to that guy in a very long time. And that was it, you know, I made this little connection and then I never spoke to him again. But the shameful part is that in an interview on, on Shondaland, and I encourage anybody who's interested in this to go to Shondaland, Shonda Rhimes, prolific showrunner in Hollywood. It is her website, Shondaland. Her interview, not her interview, but one of her, you know, staffers has an interview with Cal Penn and it's great. And Cal Penn talks about how he was sitting in a bar in New York and some stranger just came and talked to him like they perfectly knew each other and said, when my dad was dying, we watched Harold and uh, Kumar go to White Castle and I watch it and I think of my dad and I'm like, God damn it. I could have talked to him about, you know, American Desi and what an influential film that was and, and how important his career was to so many young brown actors, and including myself, even though I couldn't even imagine acting back then. It was not even a concept. Yeah. So let's backtrack a bit because that's actually, I think, the point is that it's so interesting that he chose that path for himself so early on. This is why you have to give him these props because he is a trailblazer in that respect. You know, he was born in New Jersey, so American-born Indian. His mother was a fragrance evaluator. Uh, his dad's an engineer. So this is, you know, pretty typical household that he grew up in. Yes, many Indian women are fragrance evaluators. I don't know if people know that, but that's pretty much what we specialize in, brown women, our mothers. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so it's half typical and half something I've never heard of in my life. But still, yes, solid jobs. You know, jobs, jobs, J-O-B's, capital J jobs. <laughs> yes, exactly. He went to UCLA and he majored in film and sociology, which is like two things where, you know, most uh, Indian parents are like, well, your options are business, law, medicine. That's about it. And so he's already kind of veering a bit in terms of doing film and sociology, but he went to UCLA, amazing school. And then he basically started acting after that. And did you hear about how, you know, he, he changed his name to Cal Penn? Yeah. And, you know, that's especially worth mentioning, I think, too, Asif, because when you say that he's a, you know, trailblazer and I say he's an OG, I don't know if everybody fully underst understands or appreciates what we're talking about. When you're in an industry where you have zero role models, zero role models, nothing, mm -hmm. you, you look... At every hero you have, they look nothing like you. They have names that are unlike yours. Their parents are nothing like your parents. Their family and their background is nothing like yours. 
It is a trailblazer, but there's another element, which I think you're hinting at right now, which is the discrimination and, and blatant racism he f- went through, he faced when he started. Mm-hmm. Like he was, just to give you an idea, like this guy's just trying to be him. His name ha- happens to be Kalpen. I can't remember his last name, but it's Kalpen Modi. something. So, Modi. Oh, sorry, of course it's Modi. That's right. So Kalpen Modi. And, you know, for Hollywood, in the year 2000, Mm-hmm. Casting directors, managers, agents would look at Kalpin Modi and be like, I don't know what the hell that is. I don't know what a Kalpin Modi is, but I'm not interested. And, you know, to that point, just to further that point, he gave a demo of his to his friend, right? And that demo, you know, she, she, she sends it on to her. Oh, his friend that he tells a story about is in his book is Jenna Von Oy who is from Blossom. She was like Blossom's friend. That was her main claim to fame. So they became friends, I think, in film school, I think. And then anyway, so then continue. Yeah, so she, you're right. And in film school, I think she saw he was super talented and super funny. And so she's like, people aren't calling you back. That's weird. He goes, yeah, they're not calling me back. So she asks him, can I take your tape and, you know, do some of your scene work and show it to my manager? And he's like, oh my God. And she apparently had an A-list manager and he says, of course you can. That's so nice of you. She says, I know he'll want to at least meet with you, right? Because it's me, it's my manager. I'm telling my manager I believe in you. So obviously that's how things go. You, you got to see this guy. Okay, great. She comes back and she says, I can tell you the truth, but it is a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit tricky. First of all, he was very impressed and he does not usually say that. So he absolutely means it. And Cal Penn's like, that's good news. What's the bad news? And she says, he doesn't want to meet with you. I'm just going to quote from his, uh, his Shondaland interview. He doesn't want to meet with you because he doesn't think that somebody who looks like you is ever going to work in Hollywood. And it's not worth his time, not just to represent you, but not even to meet with you. So when we say trailblazer and we say, oh, gee, this is the, this is, it's like, we cannot give this man enough credit because many people would see that and be like, I don't want to be part of a club that doesn't want to have me in their club. I'm not interested in this. This sucks. Uh, You know, audition after audition, going nowhere, going nowhere. But, uh, you know, at some level, he was a guy who really believed in himself. And and, changing his name to just Cal Penn, also his, I guess his audition rate went up by 50%. But he said, that's not why I was getting booked. I mean, I was getting booked just because there's another great story he tells at the end of the Shondaland interview about the best advice he ever received. Did you read that, Asif? I think you did, right? Yeah. yeah go ahead. I mean, I, I really like that. And I, I'll, if, and there's any actors or creatives who, who are part of our audience, and I know there are some, and some people need to hear this. He was asking this, this black woman. She was an actor. She was part of the Screen Actors Guild, so the union. He wasn't yet, but he was at this party, and she was the only black actor there. Maybe the only black woman on network television at the time, he said. So he was asking her, you know, how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with the fact you may not get hired because of the color of your skin? And she said, I make sure that they know that that's the only reason that they're rejecting me. She said, I make sure I'm the best trained, right? She was classically trained in Shakespeare, uh, MFA in acting from some top school. And she says, when I go in there, I know they're seeing my resume. They know what I've done. They know what I'm capable of doing. And if they're not hiring me because they want some middle-aged blonde actor with less training, less credits, they know why. And I've done everything I can do to make sure that I've represented myself the best to my abilities. And there's a sadness there that, you know, people of color have to be better than the best white person. Mm -hmm. Man, I love that. I love that. I think I've told you a veteran comedian from Vancouver. I, I remember once I was young in comedy and I was still that guy who's like, if a hundred people are in a room and 97 are laughing, I'd be focused on the three who aren't laughing. Mm-hmm. And I, that was like very much like, what's going on? Why can't I make everybody laugh? And Kevin Fox, this, this comedian from Vancouver, I'm watching him. It's a show that I'm hosting. And we knew there was this table who, uh, just was not enjoying themselves. They just didn't like comedy mm-hmm. or whatever we were giving them. They weren't, they weren't picking up what we were putting down. And Kevin looks right at them. He's got the room laughing. He's doing really well. He looks at their table and he goes, it's all right. I'm not for everybody. And he moved on. And I remember being, oh, wow. What a freeing, freeing thing for yourself, for the room, for that table, even just to be like, yeah, I don't don't really care if you laugh or not. You're not affecting me and I'm not going to let you affect me. And I'm Mentioning that to my own head, I'm mentioning that publicly. I I love stuff like this. So this reminds me of that a little bit, but with so much more skill and training behind it. 
Like, I'm not going to let your rejection affect me. It's funny because Cal Penn says he can't actually remember the name of the woman who he met, this actress, which is oh. which is funny. But it's betting on yourself, right? And that's what it yeah. is. And I love that perception where you can't give people a reason other than your race for not giving you a job or not doing that. And I think yeah. that's what we, we, you know, as you said, people of color have to keep in mind. And it's, it's very good advice. And it's interesting, you know, as a segue, we should talk about the Harold and Kumar movies because... Well, I think that's what happened when I was standing across from Cal Penn. He was like, he's a vegetarian. And all I could think of was like, didn't you eat a bunch of burgers from White Castle? White Castle? Yeah, I was completely like, I think that's why I couldn't come up with some good conversation. But yeah, no, of course, Harold and Kumar has to be discussed. Because that movie again, and what I liked about that. So that was written by John Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg. Those guys went on to later create Cobra Cry, which is a great show on Netflix. And just the idea they were going to write a story like that with these two minority characters in the primary roles and Mm. them being minority characters wasn't kind of the crux of everything, right? It was just these two stoners going, they, they, obviously there is stuff that comes in with Kumar's parents and things like that. Yeah. His brother played by Canadian actor, comedian, Sean Majumder. Yes, he is in, yes. And so, you know, there, there is some, some kind of, some of those things are teased out thing, but it's not the main point of the thing. It's just that these are two stoners trying to get to white castle at the end of their crazy night. <laughs> and it was just such a revelation. I think it was so cool for me to see that, even though that's not really my jam getting stoned and going to white castle in the middle of the night, but I do like burgers. And I just think <laughs> seeing this, I don't know. It was just, it was just amazing. Again, someone who's cast and a character created, who happens to be brown, but that's not the point of their character. I never really saw that before. Yeah, that was great. That was great. I mean, that was... And I think, you know, having visited my cousin, Zucky, who you know as well, like having visited American college campuses, Mm -hmm. they were pretty diverse, or at least maybe Zucky's Pakistani, so his friends were a different background, Turkish buddies, Vietnamese buddies, you know, and a lot of white guys, obviously. But they all had a lot of different cool interests that were, you know, not connected to their ethnic background. And I remember thinking of like Indiana University, as soon as I saw Harold and Kumar, you know, they have this other, these roommates or these three Jewish buddies or two Jewish buddies who are also, and it's like, sure, there's some mentions of this and that here and there, cultural stuff, it inevitably comes up when you're young, but it wasn't the point of the story of these two leads, right? Mm-hmm. They just happen to be Asian. I mean, obviously they use certain things, like his father was disappointed in him for not going in med school. Why can't you be more like your brother? But yeah, no, it was it was a very big deal not to see stereotypes in that and then the leads. The other thing about that movie, just to finish off on Harold and Kumar, is that relationship because you know, of course, you know, one of my good friends, Lee, is from Taiwan, who I grew up with. And that idea of, you know, a brown guy being friends with someone who's Asian. It's funny when you see that come up and it's because, you know, the South Asian community and the Asian community have a lot of commonalities. And so when you're growing up, even if you don't know too many brown people, you're like, oh, but that Asian guy, he knows what I'm going through because our parents have high expectations and they immigrated here and all this stuff. And so it was funny seeing that relation played out on the movie screen. And then, of sure. course, you've seen other examples like that, like Aziz Ansari in Master of None. There are some episodes with him and his best friend from when he was growing up, who was also Asian-American. So I think it was nice seeing that kind of relationship as well. And then, of course, this was a springboard, not just for Cal Penn, but for John Cho as well. They've gone on, you know, John Cho was in the Star Trek movies. He's been the star. He's been the solo star, the main top billing star in, in some movies. And then the same thing happened with Cal Penn. And of course, The Namesake is one of my favorite movies ever made, based on one of my favorite novels that I've ever read. Jhumpa Lahiri, The Namesake, phenomenal book, to be read, just an awesome... <laughs> Also, a book and a movie that my friend Arsalan, who you knew, thought was the Namasaki for a long time. He thought it was some Japanese. We made fun of him for that for a very long time. The Namasaki, huh? We would never stop making fun. Anyway, yeah, the namesake is fantastic. To be read, anything John Palahiri writes is actually from That book and that movie is the quintessential distillation of the 
experience of being born and raised in America being South Asian as if, mm-hmm. you know, and your parents were, were new immigrants. It's it's exactly it. And so many of those things resonate for me and my parents and our, our lives growing up. And Jhumpa Lahiri is an amazing author. So it, it was great. And then he moved on to House in the 2000s. And I just want to say, while you're talking about namesake, I want to mention something that I, I really liked, you know, in this New York Times article about with Cal Penn, this interview, they had asked him like, well, who is a creative person who isn't a writer that has influenced you and your work? Somebody who's not in the writing world because he's writing this memoir. He's written this memoir. And he said, Mira Nair. And Mira Nair is the director of The Namesake. And I thought that was such a great reference because that's another OG. You know, I think in Canada and Toronto, especially, there's way too much talk about Deepa Mehta as if that's the only, you know, South Asian director. Mira Nair. I mean, dude, do you remember the movie Mississippi Masala? Yeah, love that movie. So he describes it so perfectly. Denzel Washington is in that with uh, Sarita Chaudhary and another guy whose name I'm blanking on who just died relatively recently. Wonderful dude. He says those characters, he said it was the first time he'd seen South Asian characters on screen that were not stereotypes or cartoon characters. They were deeply flawed, deeply interesting human beings, financial problems. They make love. They have, you know, I remember Sarita Where's my car? Mina, where's my car? This guy, you know, she takes off with this black guy with her car and they own the motel and they're having problems. There was a phenomenal movie. It was really great. And, and Mira Nair, by the way, if anybody wants to see some great movies over the holidays, Monsoon Wedding. Monsoon Wedding. I was going to say that. That movie is Come on, man. so good. It's one of my favorite movies again. It's great for sure. Another really good movie, although thoroughly depressing, is Salam Bombay. She used Bombay Street Children yeah, in that movie, that, yeah. Untrained. It's, oh my God, this movie is to be seen, but, you know, don't watch it before going to a party or anything. This thing will take you down. But man, it is an incredible movie. And also, more recently, was The Reluctant Fundamentalist with Riz Ahmed as the lead. That was also a film of hers. Like, she's, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you got to spend some time with Mira Nair, Mira Nair's work. She's really a phenomenal, phenomenal director. And I feel like anything she touches, I'm immediately interested in. So I thought that was great that he mentioned her name because what a great person to have in your life as an influence. And of course, going for those, you know, movies that touch your very soul to House, which Quinch Calpen was on for several years into the 2000s. I'm I'm making a joke, but I I loved House. A lot of people ask me, you know, which, well, we've talked about as well, which TV shows are closest to medicine. We've talked about ER and stuff like that. But in terms of what I do as a neurologist, House is the closest because it's actually what I love about medicine, which is. I treat it like a mystery that you have to solve. Like there's somebody coming in with these symptoms. How do you figure out what's going on? And that's actually what I like the most about medicine is, you know, figuring out what the mystery is, what exactly do they have? And it could be something super rare. So I loved house and and my wife and I watched it all the time when it was on. Mm. And so he played Lawrence Kuttner. Right. So that that's another, I'm glad you mentioned the name, you know, because we've done this with Aziz Ansari. I, I always felt this joy that, Man, I always blank on his name in Parks and Rec, but it was like Tom Haverford, Tom Haverford or Haverford, right? That's a big thing for South Asians. Look, you mentioned Van Wilder. Do you remember what his name was, Cal Penn's character's name in Van Wilder? Taj Mahal Bandalandandabad. Hmm, sounds realistic. Okay, that's realistic. And then that's in 2002. He had zero ability to, you know have any, what do you want to say? He, he had no, no strings to pull. He couldn't be like, Hey, I wonder if we can change it. Not at all. And then you look fast forward to house and Lawrence Kuttner. I mean, I, that's a real source of pride for me. For and sure. that's, you know, that's 2007. That's from 2002 to 2007. That speaks to the work he's done, the work he wanted to do, the people he was working with, where he was able to be like, listen, this is not what I want to do. This is not who I'm well, trying to I, do. And I'm know? not sure about the story behind it. If my guess would be the character was created first and then, you know, he auditioned for it and they said, okay, we'll, we'll give you this character. Him, in fact, and they go back in the show, eventually you find that he was born to South Asian parents, but then later became a foster child and was adopted by American parents, so the Caucasian mm. parents. So but they go through all that later as time goes on. And so that was amazing. I agree in terms of just even his name and the fact that he's South Asian didn't have much to do in terms of his name. 
And then I'm going to spoil part of house for everybody, by the way. So no, then the way he so left the show was amazing. Was still one of the, my favorite things I've seen on television. So, well, not this exact part because he's found and he committed suicide. That's how he leaves the show. So I'm spoiling that for everybody who hasn't watched all of house. But the issue is, you know, house was obsessed with figuring out right his special ability in quotation marks was he even though he was a camargin and a drug addict and a horrible person he could figure out and understand and get to the diagnosis so what happens is he tries to figure out why lawrence cutner cal penn's character committed suicide and they go to his house and they interview people they try and put it all together and house can't figure it out and that mm. stays with House the rest of the series. That he was never able to figure out. He can figure out everything, but he can't figure out why one of his friends and colleagues did this. And mm. it's very powerful in the end. So that that again, a, a great role for Cal Penn. Again, not based entirely on him being South Asian. And then, do you know why he actually asked to be written out of the series? Do you know why, Ali? Was that the Obama years? Yeah, exactly. Was that politics? Okay. Yeah. I don't think we have to go through everything, but it was Olivia Wilde, who was his co-star in House. Now, you know, she's like a quite a big director now and also happens to be dating Harry Styles, but that's not irrelevant. She's a great actress and director. And so she was very involved with in fundraising for Obama's campaigns. And she brought Cal Penn along and he wasn't that interested in it. And there's some really good interviews and it's all in his book where he talks about, he kind of challenges Obama on this like environmental issue and Obama like basically schooled him and knew every, way more of course than Cal Penn ever knew about sure. these different issues. And he's like, this guy's the real deal. And that's why he, you know, continued fundraising for him and stumping sure. for him. And then when Obama won the election, he left house and was offered a job in the White House, which he accepted. And he did that for several years during the Obama administration. It's a good lesson in that story. It's a hilariously self-deprecating story because he had he's kind of a nerd, he says, and he, you know, he subscribes to a foreign affairs magazine, I think it was. And so he had read something about ethanol yeah, that's, that's what it was. That's what it was. He challenges Obama about, like, I heard, you know, it's bad for corn crops to invest too much in ethanol because then people who depend on corn for their livelihood can't. And Obama goes, oh, yeah, I, I, I read that in uh, Foreign Affairs recently. It, like, Cal Penn was trying to act like it was a, just a smart idea he had, but he had, you know, Obama had read the exact <laughs> same thing. Exactly. He was basically, so always, always say, I was reading recently in a magazine, but you know what I mean? So that you don't, but it's a great story and it has a great ending, which is Cal Penn, you know, staying in Iowa for a couple of, I think months. And then it was the screenwriters strike. And so he just stayed on and traveled across America supporting Obama. And he said he was inspired by all these young people working for next to nothing for him. And it's a good story. And then, you know, once he finished working at the White House and he went back to TV and movies, and he was on Designated Survivor, as you said, for several seasons. So, and that's basically, and he's still actively working in Hollywood now and has made his career. And then, of course, his book that came out. And of course, his book has this kind of revelation about Cal Penn that he's gay and has been with his current partner for, I think, 11 years now. And just, and he, it kind of goes over some of his decisions about why he came out and and how that came about. So that's kind of a big topic he's talked about on some of the recent interviews over the past few months as well. Yeah. I want to read this book because this is, you know, a personal hero of mine. I, I don't want to throw the word hero around uh, loosely, but, you know, I, I do look up to him and, you know, revere Cal Penn. Secondly, he talks about this writing process, which I am now very familiar with. I feel like I can write scripts. I can write, fine. this is the same thing that he was saying that I write this and I wrote that and it all worked for me. But all of a sudden it's like you start writing things about your own life and it's very different and it's very dark. And he said the exact same thing my editor had said to me, which is that this is some pretty dark stuff. And as a writer, you're like, yeah, where's the funny? Where's the comedy? Mm -hmm. So you have to spend this time going through revisions and revisions and be like, oh yeah, I need distance, which I actually have from the darkness. Don't go back and revisit it. Like, you know, it's the day you were punched in the face by some bully. Talk about the, you know, the comedy of it or what it perspective it gave you 20, 30 years on. So I really like that. I want to read this book because of that writing process he went through. I was definitely curious about this relationship. I don't think anybody has ever talked about Cal Penn being gay. 
Not that they should, not that they need to. That is 100% his business, but Hollywood is such that these things come out, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. But my first thought as a self-deprecating brown person, my first thought was like, wait, 11 years and you only just got engaged? I mean, buddy, this is disappointing on two levels to your parents potentially, right? But I was curious about how, you know, he ended up talking to his family about it because that can sometimes be a difficult conversation, especially sometimes with certain South Indian families and situations. But it's it's funny. He Again, this is just him being a trailblazer, but this is what he said. He said, it sounds jokey, but it's true. When you've told your Indian parents and the South Asian community that you intend to be an actor for a living, really any conversations that come after that are super easy, which is pretty mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. And I'm sure true. He, he, again, even for his own life, he had to kind of bust down doors, you know, and just be accepted for who he is when it came to his profession. And then he was able to kind of follow that along with his personal life as well. So I think, you know, we're both on the same page here. I mean, it's really, like I said, you know, we've talked again about this before. The only person who was brown on TV when we were growing up was Apu. And to have this, and, and Calpen also, by the way, he has his own thoughts about Apu. He basically hates, Not the, positive. He hates the character. Not positive. And, yeah, exactly. and, and he's definitely allowed to have that opinion, but that's also in the documentary, The Problem with Apu. But Calpen's featured a lot in it. But listen, Calpen was really the first actor that we really noticed on screen in the early 2000s and again especially not playing stereotypical asian characters taj mahal from van wilder accepted Mm, but after that he wasn't and so you know i mean i think we've been pretty clear lots of props lots of respect to cal pen yeah I feel like there's this trajectory in a, and in anyway, in a, in a South Asian actor's life, I don't know if I can, you know, extrapolate from there about other actors of color, but it feels like you start with these stereotypical roles and you're playing like, you know, accented stereotypical caricatures. And then you get to play just roles, just the name doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. And then you get to a certain age where you're like, I want to play those, those characters again. But now I want to dive into, you know, it reminds me of like Paul Hung Seung Lee on Kim's Convenience. Mm. He's like, there are immigrants who own corner stores. These are people who have accents often. These are people who are treated like they are less intelligent because they have mm-hmm. accents. Mm-hmm. They're able to express themselves very intelligently, very confidently in their own language. And the accent gets in the way that imagine the frustration that some of these people have. And he took joy in, in trying to portray that, that frustration, you know? So I think you get to a point in your career where you're like, okay, I'll go back to those roles, but I'll play them on my terms. And I, I feel like there's a little bit of that. If you go to his IMDB page, you see the choices that he's making. It is, you know, the brown roles. He is executive producer very sort of South Asian stories, but he's doing it, you know, on his terms with his own blessings. So it's great to watch. His book is called You Can't Be Serious. And if you're looking for something to read over the holidays or as part of a resolution, Mm -hmm. which many of us don't believe on, let's just say you want to read a lot of books in the coming year, might be a great option. You can read two articles we've just been quoting. One is in Shondaland, interview with Cal Pan, and one was on New York Times. And I think those articles will further set you on the path of looking into this book. All right, so this chunk of the show, Asif, I wanted to ask you something that, again, you mentioned how we talk offline, which is hilarious because that's, you know, our relationship has 99% been offline and only now come online, but we've had conversations about physician burnout in the past. I have seen this discussion becoming more and more pervasive on Twitter, in various interviews with nurses, with other people in medical communities, just getting more Mm -hmm. and more frustrated and they can no longer see or remember the reasons they got into this Mm -hmm. field or they can remember the reasons and what they have to deal with now are complete. If they knew now, How do you say it? If they knew then what they're experiencing now, they would have never got into this field. It's this whole kind of thing, right? So this is an obvious topic, and this may even be something that we have to do in two parts in the end, because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's very broad. I wanted to ask, what is physician burnout? And I'm sure, you know, there's tons of healthcare workers who are having the exact same thing, but physician burnout, I only talk about because it's, it's you. I wanted to ask about, you know, how real is it? What are the consequences of it? What does it mean? And where are we seeing it and mm-hmm. how is it manifesting? So it's a broad thing to talk about, but I guess we'll start with 
what does it mean, physician burnout? And also what is its connection to now, you know, 20 months of a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, so many good points you raise. And I think you're right. We are going to focus on physician burnout. I'm hoping in the new year, we can also focus on some other healthcare workers, especially nurses. I mean, there's such a crisis going on with nurses, especially in North America. We should really talk about that. So I think we should think about that. And it's tough, right? And, you know, if I can compare it, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but like, you know, if you go, you're on a TV or movie set and they're really behind and they're getting stressed from the producers to hurry up, the director feels that, but there's not so many other people, integral people on a movie set that are important. So you can't just focus on just physicians, just like in that situation, you can't just focus on the director. So I totally agree. And with the thing you mentioned about the pandemic is also really important too, because physician burnout was probably at a crisis level in 2019 already. Oh, see that I did not know. It wasn't being spoken about. It wasn't in interviews that were coming across my radar. That said, I didn't follow a half dozen physicians and nurses in 2019 on Twitter. Yeah. And I'm sure you see more now because of the podcast. Yeah. Well, no, also because of the pandemic, brother. I wanted to be on the forefront of what the hell's happening. Oh, I thought it was just because doctor versus comedian. No, I have a life outside okay. this podcast, but yeah. Well, anyway, so, but, you know, and I don't mean just mean 2019. It's been an ongoing problem. We can talk about some of the root causes maybe in a sec. And then the pandemic hits. Obviously, healthcare is severely affected with a pandemic, the stress on people. You know, people forget there was a time at the beginning of the pandemic where Again, everybody knows what PPE is. We did a whole episode on masks. We giggled our whole way through it. PPE. <laughs> oh my God. We didn't. Yeah. Okay. We all know. We didn't know if we were going to have masks in protection for a while because there was a worldwide shortage as we were waiting for the supply to, to increase and deliveries to increase. So just the stress of COVID on top of everything, as I always tell people, I've said this a million times. There's not, you know, when I ask a patient if they're stressed and they say no, I'm like, oh, that's weird because 7 billion people in the world are stressed right now. And you're the one person who's not like everyone is stressed at this point in the world. Yeah. But it's tough when it's healthcare and, and really it's a medical issue with the pandemic and it's been so stressful for healthcare workers. So that's really contributing more and more to burnout. And you're seeing this, as you said, online, on social media, opinion pieces. We're seeing it talked about a lot more. So. We'll go back a second and answer your question, which is, what is physician burnout? So people kind of say it comprises three things. It's obviously related to your work as a physician, and it involves emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. So emotional exhaustion is like you feel used up at the end of the day. You know, you have nothing else left to offer your patients from an emotional standpoint, from an empathy standpoint. And of course, the worry is that may also bleed into your personal life. Yeah, family you want to have, sure. you don't want to have that emotional exhaustion for your family, right? Depersonalization is treating patients like objects, not as human beings, which of course they are, hmm. being callous, hardened. I mean, there's some doctors who specialized in that since day one, though. Yeah, right? but those like, are the jerks. Yeah. And we again, we've talked about those doctors on previous podcasts. I mean, those people, like, we're just hoping that they can leave. Those are the ones we want to leave the profession. Sure. And this reduced sense of personal accomplishment, you know, feelings that you can't, helplessness, like you can't help the patients, and no value that you're getting in your job. And really, everyone should get value and satisfaction out of their job. And if you don't, it's really, I know some people can't for various circumstances, you know, financial circumstances, et cetera, other work-related circumstances, but that's anything I ever want for my kids is for them to get some sort of satisfaction out of their job. That's the most important thing. So mm -hmm. when you're not getting that in something like healthcare, that's, that's really concerning. So those all kind of contribute to what burnout is. Do you have like numbers of where it was percentage of the industry prior to the pandemic and then during the like, i just want to know how common yeah. it is and how much on the rise Yeah, i'll is. give you a couple of examples it's been increasing over year over the past few years so they say there's burnout symptoms in approximately 50 percent of studies of physicians in training and practicing physicians in the u.s for example that was pre-pandemic right that was from around 2018, 2017 or so. Mm -hmm. But just to give you a recent example, the Conference Board of Canada, so here in Canada, they surveyed 200 healthcare professionals and 
Over 50% said they were unsupported, ill-equipped for the changes taking place in medicine over the course of the pandemic. And 97% said that they reported that fatigue and burnout have increased in their workplace. So implying either themselves or other people. And I think if you ask just about every physician in Canada right now, they would agree with that. So again, it may be not themselves that are experiencing it, but they're seeing it overall, the sense of being overwhelmed. And, you know, it's everything we talked about before just a few minutes ago, but it's also like, you know, when physicians are being personally attacked you know, either yelled at, screamed at, verbally assaulted in person on social media as well for advocating vaccinations and things like that. It's very disconcerting to say the least. I think many of us could take a very, you know, well-educated guess on why things have gotten worse during the pandemic, but why do you think burnout was on the rise prior to the pandemic? What was happening in the medical field that was increasing that? Yeah, so there's a lot of different kind of causes that they've looked at in terms of why burnout has been increasing over the years. And one thing to kind of put to rest now is there could be a theory, right, that maybe medicine attracts people who are more likely to be burnt out, right? Maybe that's it. And that has shown not to be the case. Other people, probably misogynistic people, would say, well, you know what? It's been increasing in medicine over the past few years, the number of female physicians. So maybe that's it, but that's been shown to not be true either. So we can kind of put away some of those ideas that it's an inherent problem with physicians. It's an inherent problem with female physicians. That's that's all not true. One big thing is the use of these computerized order entry systems, which is a bit strange, right? Because you would think, oh, you're computerizing everything. The way we used to have to write orders is to write them down and give them to the nurse. And then they would you know, look at the order and then transcribe it and then maybe go to the pharmacist and go down to the pharmacy and pick up the medication, then come back up and then they would administer it. That seems to be pretty inefficient. So you would think that computers would be better. But what computer, we call those EMRs, electronic medical records, and everybody in medicine knows what I'm talking about when I say EMR, and they kind of have a shudder, you know, a near-death experience when I say that word, is because what it's done is it's taken a lot of work that was a clerical job, and it's moved it to physicians. So I'll give you one example. Physicians often used to dictate, you know, you've seen that maybe on old television shows, right? And on a surgeon does an operation and they go out and they dictate into a phone system or a dictaphone. They dictate everything that happened. Then they just give that to an administrative person and they transcribe what happened in the operating room. They edit that mm-hmm. a bit, but that's basically done, right? Now you have to write the note. So now when the surgeon is done, they have to go to a computer and type out every single thing that they did in the thing. So they're responsible for not just typing it out, proofreading and checking it. And then it used to just be sent automatically in quotation marks. So the, the your administrative assistant would, you know, type it out, you'd proof it, and then it would be sent out. Now you have to send it out to everybody. Okay, well, okay, I got to click on their family doctor and I got to click on, on their other specialist who referred them to me and I'll send that out. So it's these things that should be perhaps, or at least in the past done by other people, have now been passed on to physicians. And of course, there's a cost savings involved, right? Hospitals and physician practices used to have to pay for this example of dictation systems, right? And paying someone to type these out. Now they're like, well, you know what? We just saved a whole bunch of money because we don't have to pay for that anymore. So I'm just using that as an example, but that's the problem with these EMRs is that they do that. The other thing is, just like with emails, you know, if I was at work and I would have to write an order to in person on a piece of paper to, to get something done. Now they can call me at home and be like, oh, hey, you forgot to do that. Could you just, could you do this? So suddenly, you know, you have the, you could be asked to do something any time of night. There's messaging, like text messaging in the EMR system. So people can message you at any time of day. Yo, you, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? And things like that. So This EMR means you're doing more stuff remotely, which helped during the pandemic, but it's difficult to turn things off. Mm. And don't get me wrong, EMRs are useful in some respects. So for example, they can double check your medication orders. So, you know, if I made a mistake, I added a zero and I could have overdosed a patient or something, oh, we'll catch that often and say, you know, that's too much of a dose. So there definitely are good things about it. But one thing is, again, well, we let's do a whole episode maybe on EMRs and except it causes PTSD in people who have to listen to me talk about EMRs probably. But <laughs> the EMRs 
are designed mainly from U.S. manufacturers and software developers, and they're designed to maximize billing. So they're not designed to be in the best interest of patients. They're not right, even right. designed to be in the best interest of physicians. You think they would be because you have to maximize billing. But in the U.S., it's usually HMOs who are invested in that, and they want to maximize the amount of profits they can make. And so sure. even when we use them in Canada, even though we don't have the same HMO system, we have to then kind of like work with an American system that has all these weird things in it to maximize billing that those don't really help us out. Sure, sure, sure. It's reflective of a lot of the stuff I'm reading about, about you know people very much publicly saying when you make healthcare a for-profit business... There are many places where you have some serious, serious drawbacks and serious, of course, consequent negative consequences. And this again is con- contributes to, to burnout as well because the patients are being placed first, you know. Yeah, but there's also you know other things that contribute to burnout: excessive workloads, loss of support of colleagues, and one of the things that they found is is when you feel you don't have control. So again, when you talk about those HMOs in the states, and even when it comes to like the provinces in Canada that control healthcare spending, the less you have control as an individual physician over your work environment, your practice, and people keep telling you what to do instead of asking you what to do or mm-hmm. you know having you involved in decision-making, that definitely contributes to burnout. I'm going to ask you a very obvious question, but I think there may be some a variety of answers on this. But what have been the consequences then of all this burnout to patients? Because you talked about, you know, different effects of all this in the hospital and with colleagues and work, you know, but what about, I don't know, are patients saying something? Is there, you know, an uptick in patient complaints as a result of this or? I mean, it's death. It, it, well, yeah, some of those things have been found. So some, oh, no. so some studies have found that physician burnout, if it causes suboptimal patient care, can be associated with a doubled risk of medical error <laughs> and a 17% increased odds of being named in a medical malpractice suit for a physician. So you assume if there's a malpractice suit there that something went wrong Or at the very least, there was a communication problem because there's been tons of research on this over the years, but medical malpractice suits are often more of a problem with communication. And you can say, okay, well, maybe that's just the jerk doctors you were alluding to at the beginning, right? But it's not. If you're rushed to do everything and feeling burnt out, then maybe you're not communicating in the most optimal way with patients, and that could have negative consequences. I know we're talking about something very serious here, but it's very difficult for me not to think about Arrested Development right now and those the doctor who's like, we may have to open you back up because I believe I left a pair of snippers inside you. I might not have, but it's it's unlikely. And then, you know, you know, when Tobias was like, or it could be his colon. I'd like to get in there and get some answers. Anyway, I can't stop thinking about Arrested <laughs> Development right now, but obviously there's nothing comedic about this. That's the sad part that this is like actual consequences that are not, you know, written for funny scripts. These are like really happening to people. Well, and then there's also consequences to just the workforce of physicians, right? Because burnout can be associated with decreased job productivity and, Mm. you know, job dissatisfaction. And one report says, you know, that over time, the amount of people has doubled in terms of people who desire to leave their medical practice, you know, not just retiring, but leaving their medical practice. So you can imagine there is consequences to patients even indirectly, right? If you can't get a family doctor, if you can't get into a specialist, if there's limited spots and you have a huge waiting list to get in, that's because maybe people are leaving the workforce. And in the United States, one statistic is that the burnout and the people leaving practice because of burnout, this lost productivity annually is equated to the loss of the graduating classes of seven medical schools. So it's like all those people leaving because of burnout is like you just have seven less medical schools in in America now. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, I was just thinking about, you mentioned medical schools. My thoughts were, you know, these things have this trickle-down effect. It's a little bit slow, but now people who maybe wanted to go into medicine have chats with some doctors about what do you think. You know, they're, they're looking for mentors. They're looking for guidance. And there'll be more and more doctors who are like, don't. Don't get into this practice. I'm thinking. So now you'll also have less doctors potentially going in to fill these positions, right? You'll have less people going into yeah. medicine potentially. Yeah, potentially. Or 
I don't know. Maybe you have more who are like, finally, you know, we, you and I both have a, a good friend who's an orthopedic surgeon. And there's some of these fields who are like, you know, it's like, I'll get a full-time job in my field once about 780 people die. That's basically what I'm waiting for. So now with people getting out of the field, maybe some people will be like, no, now I'm definitely getting into medicine. Yeah, now that's a bit more of a Canadian problem than a U.S. problem. Okay. I think. Okay. And I mean, you also have to keep in mind another thing that contributes to burnout is it would be nice to for people to scale back. Why don't they just work a few days a week, right? Why don't I just work two days a week or three days a week? But that's often not possible for people, especially in the US, because of the staggering amounts of, of medical school debt that they have. You could easily come out of medical school with $500,000 in debt that you have to pay off over time. And so you don't have the option to decrease your work hours. So now you're stuck working crazy hours because you have to pay off it. So it's this vicious cycle that people get stuck in. So I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of reasons to not, not go into medicine and that, you know, the student debt and its contribution to burnout is a big one. I don't want to ask this in a callous way at all, but I, I do remember you know, this goes back 20, 30 years, uh, learning that dentists had the highest rate of suicide. Those are serious consequences to, you know, the, the health and welfare of a, of a person who chooses a certain job. Are you seeing, you know, addiction or, or self-harm or, yeah. or anything like that? You are? Yeah, burnout is associated with a 25% increased odds of substance use, alcohol use, and doubled risk of suicidal ideation in, in physicians. So it's quite concerning. And, you know, physicians are at a higher risk of suicide compared to the general population. I know it's, it's a weird thing for people to think about, but it's definitely yeah. true. And we were taught that in medical school. I did not know. The uh, suicide rate amongst male physicians is 40% higher than other males in the population. And the suicide rate amongst female physicians is 130% higher than other females in the same population. It's very interesting, man. You said at the beginning that, you know, the one thing you want for your kids is that they do work that they value. Is that the way you said it? Yeah. Yeah. Get some sort of satisfaction out of I mean, related to that, I think I'm just, this is just a theory here from a dum-dum, but I feel like, you know, more than many professions, when you are a doctor, that is your identity, right? And just seeing over the pandemic, mm -hmm. people, friends who are like comedians, yes. that's what they were. They weren't a server, even though they served 40 hours a week and they only told jokes 10, they were a comedian. That was their goal. And so watching people's identities get stripped away, I can see how that would be so incredibly devastating where you're just like, I don't know who I am. You know, I have friends who wanted to be doctors since their early teens. It was I just know. the only thing they were, this is what they wanted to do. And once you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And you're in your, your let's say your forties or fifties. It's like, who am I? What am I doing? And so, I don't know. I just add that from a perspective of a, a layman here. And I, I imagine. And it's interesting. It's different for different specialties with regards to burnout. There's lower burnout ones like preventative medicine and occupational medicine have very low burnout, but other ones have a high risk of burnout, emergency room physicians, of course. internal medicine, your good old neurology, you know? And so, but the point you made is, is so good. So, so those specialties, I don't know, maybe it's an identity issue and you're not being able to fulfill that identity. But I, again, I've said this many times to you. I, I think I've said it before on the podcast. If someone asked me why you should go into medicine, you don't go into medicine to make money for sure. If that's your <laughs> reason, there's many other things you could do to make money and you should not go into it if your overall goal is to help people. And that's one of the problems with this system is because so many people in medicine are altruistic. They want to go in to help people and then they feel this conflict, right? Because of the everything we talked about, the hours, the computerized systems, everything, and, and not being able to care for patients. It's when we uh, had an episode on the hidden curriculum, right? It's that tension that, that that creates. Really, the best reason to go into medicine is because you love the study of medicine and you get something valued out of it. Like what we were talking about house before in the previous section, right? Like mm. I enjoy that. That's the best part of, of medicine for me is, is kind of trying to figure out what's going on. So this is such a key, right? And it kind of goes back to what we were saying about what we, what I want for my kids. You need to find meaning in your work and physicians who spend 20% or more of their time and effort on an activity, which they find meaningful, they have less burnout. 
you know? So if you're doing tasks every day that you love for me, if it's seeing patients interacting with my patients, like I actually like that. And I tell people that all the time. No, I love what I do on a daily basis. I hate the paperwork. I hate the administration. I hate all that other stuff. That's what I don't like. But when it comes to actually seeing patients, that's what I enjoy. And I just, I hope other people in medicine can, can maximize that. And in fact, when I became the head of neurology, I'm the head of neurology at my hospital, another head of neurology at one of the biggest hospitals in Canada was talking to me about, you know, he's like, you know, you have, that's what your job should be is to try and maximize for people who work with you, what they enjoy about it in their life, in the medical life and minimize what they hate, you know? So that's what you try and be as a leader. And there's lots of books in the business world that talk about that. Well, I was actually going to to a different direction because you said, you know, I think everyone should get some value and self-satisfaction out of what they do. But dude, I think that's some ivory tower stuff right there. Like, I don't think that that's Mm -hmm. realistic. I don't think that that's possible for everybody. And I think there is value for a lot of people to do a job for eight hours and come home and not have to think about that job. Mm-hmm. The door shuts behind you and you're done. That's not the case with you. I don't know. I think there's value also for some people to be like, no, I don't like what I do, but the important thing for me is to leave it behind right. once I leave, once I get If out. you can do that, that's great. But that's the problem with medicine as a field of practice, right? It's, it's just too difficult. I want to ask you about a bunch of the, you know, I suggested at the beginning, this might have to be a two parts. And I now am convinced that this will have to be a two parter <laughs> mm-hmm. because I wanted to talk to you about various causes and risk factors. And I also want to talk about like, what do you do? What are the solutions? You know, I was hinting at that with the ERMs, MRMs, EMRs, EMRs. You're almost there. REM. You're like REM. REM. Yeah. Like you can't go back. So what are the solutions? But I think this is, as I, you know, thought a two-parter there's a lot to this you know burnout didn't start yesterday and it wouldn't have a quick fix so i think we got ourselves a double folks on the flip side we'll have you know more positive hopeful messages maybe asif well at least hopefully a way forward but yeah Yeah. i think i like that idea so let's it may not be the next episode but we're going to continue this conversation in the future and i can answer you need some time away from this talk about burnout so that you don't burn out on burnout i get it but a a couple other ideas i have some ideas i'll leave for some guests that can also talk about burnout from different perspectives and so i would love to get cal but actually People don't know this, but Ali is publishing a book this year and you guys have the same publishing company. So I don't know why Cal Penn isn't on this podcast talking about it, but can you get on that, please? Fair enough. I mean, we basically interviewed him without interviewing him today. (laughs) That is true. I should have just played. What would we have left to talk to Cal about, right? We just gush, uh, you know, for 30 minutes, but let's maybe we'll plan for the beginning part of 2022 to have some various topics looking at burnouts. Got it. Okay, Ali, so that's our show for today. Anything you want to uh, mention or plug? Just hope everybody's having a, a wonderful 2020 Two? What is it called again? Yes, it is 2022. Yes. There's no fun way to say it, right? There's no there's no cool way Not to say yet. it. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, all the best in the new year. If we we should have kind of opened with that, I think, right? This is our first episode of the new year. Yeah. Shouldn't well, we have opened with that? Oh well, you know, what can you do? Listen, but of course, see, why is it that I have to mention all these things? You have a show that just came out. The first yes. episode just came out. I was out. getting to it. Oh my I'm gosh. very, very happy about the show. It's called Run the Burbs. Presently, it is on CBC Gem and CBC Television, and it is led, produced, and co-written by Andrew Fung, who was one of the stars of Kim's Convenience. He played Kimchi on Kim's Convenience. Very happy to work with this guy. It's been an honor to be, you know, witness to this man's work ethic, and it's been a really, really fun show. I think I told you I was supposed to be in a couple, small handful of episodes, and I wound up being in, in the majority of episodes, and I, I think it was just because we had a lot of fun on set. I don't know how Andrew has fun. He works very, mm-hmm, very hard, mm-hmm. but I was able to have a ton of fun 
And I'm looking forward to it. I think, you know, it's one of those shows, you know, the first few episodes, you got to figure out who are these people. We were also figuring out who are these people. And then midway through the season, it really, it picks up some energy and gets, and gets more and more fun. And then at the end, we were like, I ah, kind of don't want it to end now. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Another thing to mention is we were just on another podcast called the Jock Doc Podcast. And was I? Was I or though? Were we playing characters? Because yeah. this is a parody podcast. I cannot stretch that enough. We were not <laughs> playing ourselves. It's a parody podcast. It's kind of an improv a podcast. It's very much in the vein of Scott Ackerman and Comedy Bang Bang. If you guys have listened to them, it's quite a funny podcast. It's quite hilarious. And so they have these guests on. So Ali and I are playing two characters who are some shady alternative medicine business. <laughs> But they were two characters. I don't know if we should tell them any more about that or if we just have them tuned no, in. No, I think just plug Jock Doc and yeah, the Memets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Those were our names. So so just look for that wherever you get your podcasts, search Jock Doc, and you'll see oh, we were just on a recent episode. So download that, take a listen to that, let us know what you think, and email us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, drvcomedian. One thing that any of you who's who have used Apple and have updated your software recently, you got to click automatic downloads again for all your favorite podcasts if they updated your podcast app. Mm. So just make sure you do that because the automatic downloads really help us out. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. A medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.